You are listening to WCAT Radio, your station for quality Catholic programming. Your selected program will begin right after a word from our sponsor, GroupM7.com, a web design and hosting company. Log on to GroupM7.com today and let them know that WCAT Radio sent you. You know, my finest childhood memories was the Saturday morning movies for about four bits each. My brother and I could split a Coke and a big box of popcorn and watch movies about Tarzan, Jane, and their Amazon River adventures. Well, maybe that's where Jeff Bezos took his name. His Amazon.com is now the largest online retailer in the world. I'm Michael Malfood with Group M7, the oldest and largest website design firm in East Texas. And here's my point. And as usual, it's a good one. If your website is modern and up-to-date, mobile and search engine friendly, it matters not whether you sell a product or provide information about your goods and services, your sales justifiably will increase just like theirs. The world uses the internet. We can improve your website and your email. Look at our giant portfolio at groupm7.com. Since 1995, there's only one web and there's only one group and it's us. It's Group M7. You're listening to WCAT Radio, your home for authentic Catholic programming. Good afternoon, and thank you for tuning in to WCAT Radio's Vows, Vocations, and Promises, Discerning the Call of Love. I am your host, Dr. Marianne Arlakis. Today I have the privilege of speaking with a very special guest who is phoning in today from Rome, Deacon Lucas LaRoche. And before we begin, I would like to ask Deacon Lucas if he would start us off with a prayer. Of course. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Let us pray. O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit did instruct the hearts of the faithful, Grant that by the same Holy Spirit we may be truly wise and ever rejoice in his consolations. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Deacon Lucas, and thank you for taking the time to join me today on WCAT Radio's Vows, Vocations, and Promises Discerning the Call of Love uh, to discuss your personal vocation story and as well as your article, your recent article entitled Enculturation and the Roman Rite, which was recently published in the publication of uh, the Pontifical North American College, um, the uh, Ex Latare Christe, Deacon Lucas LaRoche is a seminarian for the Diocese of Worcester in Massachusetts. He is currently in his first year in the Licentiate in Sacred Theology and Patristic Theology at the Pontifical Gregorian University. He is completing his final year at the Pontifical North American College. Deacon Lucas wrote a thesis for his bachelor's in Sacred Theology on the Zairean use of the Mass which was the fruit of his long interest after working with parishes in his home diocese, as well as the local Melkite and Extraordinary Form communities. Welcome, Deacon Lucas. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Um, and it's 
One thirty and and sunny and nice over here, but you're willing to do this, and it's uh, eight thirty there. Um, so I am really grateful for you to take the time out of your busy day at the end of a long day to to speak to us here today. Um, would you start us off here on vows, vocations, and promises, discerning the call of love, by telling us a bit about your own vocational journey? How did how did you get from where you were here over to Rome? Um, and tell us a bit about uh, you know what your call was, how how you learned that God was calling you to become a priest. Of course. Um. It's always funny for me because I know, like a lot of other people, you get the moments when you realize that the Catholic Church is part of who you are from the beginning, from for better or for worse. I talk to people who might be Catholic, might be not, and they'll talk about when they had their reversion or their conversion, or when they first met Christ. And uh, my joke is always that I'm Quebecois growing up in New England, so I didn't have a choice. He was sort of there from the earliest days. So... I grew up uh, to a French-American family in little town of Gardner, Massachusetts, furniture capital of America, or at least it used to be. And I was baptized and catechized all the way through, as um, most people were a cradle Catholic, for sure. And the Catholicism being a part of our lives, when I was young, my parents maybe didn't go to church every weekend, but we were regulars in some way. We continued with that. So I went on, I went through schooling. For high school, I studied at the technical school in the area, Montachusett Regional Vocational Technical School, where I studied printing as well as got my high school diploma. And after that, I went to college. And I'd known through high school, I think, that I felt a call to be a priest. But after my first year in college at Assumption College in Worcester, now Assumption University, I decided to take that jump. So I applied to the diocese and I transferred into uh, being a second year college seminarian for the Diocese of Worcester. And that was a great grace in a real way because I got to stay at Assumption College and continue my studies there while I was living and praying and being formed at our Holy Name of Jesus House of Studies across town on Illinois Street in Worcester. And I had continued through there, uh, finished my bachelor's degree, and then was sent to St. John's Seminary just outside of Boston in Brighton, Massachusetts for a bit. Yes. Yeah, I was there for a year where I was taking, finishing up some pre-theology and doing all of that. And then at the end of that year, uh, His Excellency Bishop McManus, the Bishop of Worcester, had decided to send me to Rome. And I arrived four years ago, uh, four years ago now, and I'm coming to the end of that fourth year and getting ready to go back home to be ordained a priest. And just a little bit, uh, well, what's it, a bit less than a month now. Um, so what I'm is looking the date forward. of your ordination so we can pray for you? Thank you very much for asking. It's June 19th. Great. We'll be praying. Thank you. So I've uh, got my flight home in a week from today, actually. And, uh, you know, it's a long journey, but coming to the end of it and starting another one in a real way. Well, that is incredibly exciting. I, I, thank you for sharing your story, um, and thank you for for your vocation. Thank you for your your fiat, your yes to God. Um, it's an amazing journey, and uh, we're grateful to you for your vocation and for accepting the call. 
You've Thank written you. a fabulous article on a really hot topic, um, the idea of liturgical enculturation. As you mentioned in the beginning of your, of your paper, um, that once again it has come to the forefront of the discussion. Um, in your paper, you mentioned that the watershed moment for the development of this concept was found in uh, Sacrosanctum Concilium. Sacros- mm-hmm. Sacrosanctum Concilium, which states, even in the liturgy, the Church has no wish to impose rigid uniformity in matters which do not implicate the faith or the good of the whole community. Nor does she... Um, uh, oh, I am... Excuse me here. I'm, I'm reading it from my notes rather than from your paper. And I need to try it again. Even in the liturgy, the church has no wish to impose a rigid uniformity in matters which do not implicate the faith or the good of the whole community. Rather, she does respect and foster the genius and the talents of the various races and people. Um, This is a huge idea when we look right now at different races, different cultures, and the need to be respectful of those cultures while also keeping the purity of the liturgy. Um, can, you, can you speak to that? Yeah, and it becomes interesting because we look at just the structure of the church ecclesiologically, and we see a little bit of that present because, of course, you and I talking, we're Roman Catholics, and we worship in the Latin rite most of the time. But even if we're just looking at the very basic elements and how the church spread, there was never one culture and one way of worshiping, it seems. Because we know from the very early ages that where the apostles landed ended up praying differently from very, very early times. And when we go back in history, it's a little bit blurry sometimes because our documentation only goes back. But it seems that by the time we have written evidence the way the Christians prayed in Rome was very different than the way they prayed in Jerusalem, was very different than the way they prayed in Constantinople, was very different from the way they prayed in Antioch or Alexandria, etc. So we see this at a very early stage where people pray differently according to how they do it, because in a very large way, uh, we look at it and we look at people accept the gospel in different ways. When they accept the gospel, they become Christians in their fullness, But we can look at it and see that there's something in the gospel truth. There's something in the gospel truth which sticks with that culture in a way that it might not stick with a different culture, even if it's neighboring or existing in the same framework. And when we talk about the church's worship, we say this played out because you have the cultural importance of it and the gospel value being incarnated in a real way in this cultural identity. And it leads the people to pray differently, which makes perfect sense because if we view prayer as not just the right and ink on paper, but if we look at it as a lived expression of the community's faith, we're able to see that lived out in different ways in a legitimate diversity. Um, Very interesting and and very vital. You define enculturation in in the paper um, as, you know, broadly when the the gospel takes on some cultural elements which are neither native nor vital to the kirgama to better articulate the truth of its proclamation to a group of people, that the, the goal, the purpose of enculturation is always to evangelize. Um, could you go over again just you know this definition uh, as for for laymen for 
uh, those who are listening, the purpose and the, the function of enculturation, what it is no. and what it is not. No, and that's a, that's a very good question because I think when we're talking about enculturation in the modern world, we do have um, some people put up a wall against it immediately. Yes. Because uh, one phrase that I'm always trying to use when we talk about this is legitimate diversity. Because yes. that's not to say that we can do whatever we want and uh, whatever we want something to be is really the best idea. So when we're talking about enculturation, um, actually, Marion, if you give me a second, because I'm just going to pull up that bit that you quoted. Um, that way I have my text in front of me to guide me. I'm in section one there. Okay, do you have the page number? That's a very good question. Let me take a peek here. Bottom of 84 to the beginning of 85. Uh, is, and is this in the Ex Lottere Christi version? or? Yes, yes. Okay, just one second. Sorry about that. Just, uh, I'm one of those people that... I just if had to I, do the same thing. I was reading from notes well, and I had to go back to the text, so I, I understand. Thank you. Let's see if I can find uh, that version of it. What I have Question. here, following that first, that first sentence, was more specifically in the liturgy, it refers to those elements which may be adopted into the church's sacred liturgy to better articulate the gospel through the drama of liturgy to a specific audience. Okay, I see that here. Um, okay, so I'm all set to uh, continue with that. So when we're talking about enculturation on layman's terms, it comes down to the idea that different people in different places end up believing and praying in different ways, even though those end up being um, compatible with each other. And if you look yes. at it in a very real way, we can look at it even if it's people who are using the Latin rite but in different times and places. For instance, if you or I, who are living in Rome or the United States, um, when we're talking about liturgy and we're talking about how we pray and what we pray for, it's very different than what someone in South America or Africa or several hundred years ago is going because you or I living where we live have fairly comfortable existences um, versus someone way back when would have a different experience. And a big question in the history of the church is rogation days, which used to be very, very important and perhaps unfortunately have sort of fallen off the bandwagon for popular devotion right now. But it used to be a major thing in the Roman Rite that you'd have the local parish priest who uh, four days a year would process through the fields and bless the fields. And these are this is coming from a very agrarian culture right. where if you don't grow food, you don't have anything to eat. So if you look at that and if that's a part of your daily life where what you're putting on the table is something that you've grown from the earth, that becomes a very important way to pray. And that right. becomes a very important part of your life and something you pray for and something that you see the love of God for because you have someone who doesn't know the intricacies of how plants grow and I count myself through that. I'm no biologist and I don't know the full explanation of how plant life works. And 
with a little bit of meditation, it really isn't an exaggeration to say that that's a mystery, and you can see the providential love of God in that. Yes. But in as much as we see that, we see other cultures that have, perhaps in a less dramatic way, um, different inclinations and different views of things that would affect their example. If I can look at it a little bit in history, and I'm not sure if this is something that you had later down the line, but what's very interesting in the Roman liturgy is an idea of filiality, uh, the idea of sonship, because we look at the Romans, and if we look at them in history, when we talk about them, they have this lovely tendency in their pagan culture to put a big focus on the family, um, namely in the father of the family and this father-son relationship. And on this relationship of father and son, all of Roman society was built. So that becomes something very pregnant and very present in the Roman liturgy, this idea of the sonship of God, the sonship that we all share in Jesus Christ. And of course, this is universal in all of Christianity because Paul writes about it in the Bible. But when we have that, it's a special focus in the Roman liturgy and the Roman life because when the gospel reached Rome, they have this idea of Jesus' divine sonship and his sharing that with us that caught the Roman imagination. On the other hand, you can look at it and that same stress isn't as present in other liturgies versus if we look at the text of the Maronite liturgy, for instance, it's very pneumological. It talks about the Holy Spirit a lot. And you have the Maronite interest with the Holy Spirit and the frequent reference to that, as well as the idea of the Holy Spirit is fire, where the Maronite liturgy used to include a bit where the vessels were washed before they were used for the sacrifice, but they weren't washed in water, at least for the ritual part, they were washed in fire. So the censer was brought over, the incense was burned, and the vessels were washed in the smoke as uh, a mean of cleansing them. And you have this idea of the Holy Spirit and the element of fire, which was present in their culture before being captured in that relationship that's articulated in the liturgy. Those are two basic ways of looking forward to it. But we can look at it, and when we start talking about enculturation proper, and as we're referring to it now, where you have some things which work differently. Because when I was doing my research into the Zairean use of the Mass, you have certain parts of African culture which don't quite work the same way as different parts of um, the culture, more European culture, that the Roman Rite was articulated and came to be in. So you'll have different concepts that I articulate in the paper of how authority is shared in a village and how people relate to each other in different roles within the village. One of the Zairean principles that's in the Missal is the idea of the commentator, which effectively serves as uh, the town crier, who, from my understanding, as it's been relayed to me, is very present in the life of the African village. And this is a liturgical role that's been brought up, which appears before the procession to exhort the people to pay attention to the Mass, um, just as you would exhort an important visitor in the village. So you have this cultural idea which of a herald that the gospel is latched onto, which later, through a more formal process of enculturation, became part of the liturgy. Similar to the deacon in the divine liturgy who is saying wisdom be attentive? 
Exactly in a real way because both of these have the idea of uh, drawing it to each other. So the deacon in the divine liturgy, when he, whenever anything major is about to happen, he cries out in one language or another, wisdom be attentive, Sophia Orthi Proskomen. Um, but these ideas that it's drawing attention to something and I don't know the exact cultural background of the deacon but it served, and the divine liturgy and why those came about. Um, but it is serving the same role as pointing towards something. When you mentioned liturgy and missal and rite and, and use, can you make a distinction between each of those four terms and how they're, how they're used? Yeah, so liturgy, missal, use, and rite. Um, and this is difficult, and this is where we get into the brass tacks in some ways. Um, so when we're talking about this, it becomes difficult because these words are used interchangeably sometimes, and it's not to say that they can't be used interchangeably, but for the purpose of a paper like this, we always need to be precise um, yes. just to make sure that we're getting our point across. I'm just going to go down the list because I think that's easiest. But liturgy is an act of worship. Um, Lethargia, work on behalf of the people in Greek. And it's the ceremony and everything that's surrounded by it. It's a very broad term, but when we bring into it uh, the terms that we're using, we can talk about the Zairean liturgy, we can talk about the Roman liturgy, the Byzantine liturgy, and this is the vaguest term. It's work on behalf of the people in that context. Um, we get a little bit more nuanced in a way and a little bit more tied to a physical object when we talk about missile. Because the missile, just very generally speaking, is, of course, the book that the priest reads the prayers out of during Mass. And used to be called the sacramentary, of course, and other rites, we'll get to that word in a little bit, but other rites will call it different things, be it a liturgicon or a book of offering, but right. that's the book published itself. And I sort of leaned on the word missile in my work because when you're looking at this, it can be called a use. A use is just a liturgy that's used in different places and it varies from time to time. One of the points that I sort of was against was the use of rite. And this is a word that we hear used a lot and not properly in a technical sense because very often we'll talk about with the Eastern churches especially, the Melkite rite, the Ruthenian rite. Yes. Um, yeah, and rite is a ritual. Rite is not a church. We can talk about the Melkite church and the Ruthenian church using the Byzantine rite or the Byzantine liturgy. Yes. But the Zairean Missal, as it's published, doesn't really exist as a rite as the church defines that in the codes of canons of Eastern churches. And that's a very technical definition. But okay. those four ideas, liturgy being the form of worship, and we can talk about that in a variety of ways, Missal being the book, use being the practice as it's done, and right being a technical definition that belongs more to the Eastern churches than to something. Because at the same time, to use another example, on our own 
And we do have, since Anglicanorum Chetibus, published by Pope Benedict XVI, Divine Worship the Missal, which is what's used by, it's hard to find a word, but those communities that are of former Anglicans or Episcopalians that yeah. have been received into full communion with the Church. Um, you do often see the phrase thrown around in their presence of an Anglican rite, but that's not quite precise enough as far as the Church sees it. Okay. I've seen Anglican youth often as yeah. well. Yeah, and that's a bit more of a um, technically correct phrase, but it's it depends because you'll get how people talk about it. It does matter. It's not something that we want to split hairs over, but it's helpful to go forward knowing how to talk about it um, in a detailed way. Interesting. You mentioned in some of the, the material that we went back and forth on uh, via email that enculturation is really, in essence, only possible in the Roman Rite, um, not possible in the Eastern churches. Can you explain that statement? Yeah, and that's a bit of a hot topic in some ways. But this is something else that I've been working on for a little bit. But enculturation as we view it is really only seen to the level at which we see it in the Roman Rite. Because okay. in the Roman Rite, it happens well throughout history and it happens frequently. You have everything from the Chinese rites controversy to the yes. Algonquin and the Huron Mass going through the ages. And you see it happen really frequently um, versus you don't see it so much in the Eastern churches. Um, and it's interesting in our view because talking about how people receive it, something that I remember from catechism, I'm sure maybe you might and maybe many of your listeners will, we talk about in the Roman Rite, the Mass as the representation of Christ's sacrifice on Calvary. Yes. And when we see that means, that means that you or I standing where we're standing, be it at the Pontifical North American College in Rome or our local neighborhood church in the United States, are standing there in the year 2021, and that saving event, that wonderful event that happened on the year 33 in outside of Jerusalem is represented to us. And it's a bridge across time because it's a historical event that happened at a particular time that is made present again at another particular time. Yes. So we see that because we're encountering that salvific event in our own place, at our own time. To use another example, and this gets into some heavy theology, and I'll try to stay away from changing the subject too much, we can look at the Byzantine Rite. Um, and the Byzantine Rite will do things a little bit differently because as we read the mystagogies of the Greek fathers talking about the liturgy, there's a, different, there's a shift that happens at a certain point in how they view time as yes. attached to it. So, for instance, you and I are sitting in 2021, and we talk about events that happened saving us in the Mass. Versus in the Byzantine liturgy, uh, it seems to take the same tack at times. But the Greek fathers will say that once the little entrance, the entrance of the Gospel book happens, yes. time and eternity sort of collapse. You have this idea which is a yes. little bit stressed too much of Kronos and Kairos. Yes. Um, and these two ideas of time, and chronos in the Greek sense is time that we measure. We talk about a chronograph, which is someone who's a bit fancy might call their watch. 
Um, but you have this idea of time measured. And then kairos, which is a time which can't be measured. It's the time to act. It's the right time. Um, and this is a time in which God works. It can't be measured with hours or months or years. Yeah, so of course one of the first lines in the Byzantine liturgy, the deacon turns to the priest to, to begin one of their dialogues before the opening blessing. And he says, Despota kairos estin. Despota, uh, it is the kairos. Master, the time to act is now. The kairos is now. And it shows a shift. But by the time you get about you know, 30% of the way through the liturgy, you have the entrance of the gospel book, and the commentators will say that at this point, uh, the liturgy is no longer per se happening in a particular place and time, but it's happening in the heavenly court, and it's being represented uh, to us in that way, but in a way that bridges in a different way. And the easy way to look at this is when you're looking at the anamnesis, the part of the Eucharistic prayer during the Byzantine liturgy where the priest comments on past events. Well, let me see if I can remember this now. Um, the priest will pray, remembering therefore all that has come to pass for our sake, the cross, the tomb, the resurrection on the third day, the ascending into heaven, the enthroning at the right hand, and the second coming in glory. We offer you your own of your own, always and everywhere. Um, but that list of events that he talks about, uh, from the beginning to the second coming is all in the aorist, which in Greek only refers to past events, and past events that happen once and for all. So you have this concept in the Eucharist, Eucharistic prayer of the Byzantine liturgy of referring to the second coming has already happened. Um, and this idea of it being present there and all of earth really existing as an afterthought, not in a bad way, but right. time having been completed and us praying at that moment. That's the theological reason. You also have on another reason because, of course, the Byzantine liturgy through much of its history, much more of its history, was tied to a more imperial sense. And to accept the liturgy was to accept the empire, was to accept the right. culture. Um, and that plays out a long way. Uh, you mentioned at the beginning, and I might have mentioned since, the Melkites. And the Melkites yeah. were, of course, originally Syrian Catholics. They used the Syrian rite. Um, but they adopted the Byzantine rite when the Byzantine Empire came around. Of course, Melkite comes from the word Malek Malik in Semitic languages, which means king, referring to the emperor. So it's these people who adopted the emperor's liturgy. Um, along with the culture and language in some places that at least came along with that in a tangential way. So you have those ideas of both a culture being adopted with it and a theology of time um, that make it, since neither of those are as present in the Roman liturgy, make the Roman liturgy more likely, um, more possible for enculturation. For enculturation. That's very interesting. I, those who listen to me frequently know I have one foot in the Byzantine church and one foot in, in the um, Roman rite, the Latin church, um, canonically Latin, uh, but I worship with the Holy Resurrection Monastery quite frequently. Um, and 
belonging to all of these uh, uh, social media groups that are part uh, Byzantine and part Latin, you have this tension between the two at times over quote-unquote Latinizations. Um, mm-hmm. And now seeing the fullness of how time is expressed, that really makes more sense. Um, yeah. Very interesting. And also the sense of a imperial imposition um, makes a little bit more sense, too. Um, so it's not just a, a more of a tendency to happen with the, the Roman rite, because the Roman rite is, is larger um, uh, or more frequently represented. It is actually uh, partly an essence of, of which uh, the churches are. I would say so, and when we start talking about this, we start to talk about sort of what-if questions, which are always dangerous when we're doing any sort of academic work, but I would suggest that perhaps that might be the case, because we talk about um, impositions, and that's not to use a negative sense of the word, um, but we look at the Byzantine liturgy, which was tied to one or two sort of major seas, and there were some slight modifications between the Slavs and the Greeks, for instance. Then we have other things with the Nikonian reforms in Russia. But we do have a more central authority with the liturgical text used compared to the Western Church, the Latin Rite, which for the majority of its history would not be uncommon to find a different missile in some sense used between two dioceses that were next to each other. Oh, and yeah. those grew up over the ages to be the Sarum use that we talk about now. Um, and all of that was quite common until Trent, where a lot of the practices were standardized. Well, when I think about enculturation, I think about our own history here in the rolling hills, the Cattle Moraine of Wisconsin, um, and the Irish immigrants and the German immigrants coming at the same time and not necessarily getting along with each other. So you have a beautiful mm-hmm. Catholic church in one place that is the Irish church, St. Patrick's. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have St. Boniface very close. Um, and, you know, the, the old joke that there was the, the agreement that every other bishop would be either Irish or German um, mm-hmm. so that they would alternate just because of the tension between the two cultures. Um, mm. Yes, some of that is lure and some of it isn't true, but you see those, those hints of it that are true um, mm-hmm. and the history of that enculturation. When we look at your paper, um, one of the, the focuses of the paper is the Zierin, uh um, missile and the Zirin liturgy. Could you explain how that came about? Yeah. So it's a bit of a history lesson in some ways because the Zairean Missal was something that came to be a bit before the Second Vatican Council. There were murmurings and after the Second Vatican Council with Sacrosanctum Concilium's movement towards an openness towards enculturation became more present. We should say what Zaire is because it's a name that we don't hear much anymore. Um, What used to be Zaire is now called the Congo. Um, So when we're talking about Zaire in the area in which it was allowed, um, we're talking about what's now around the Congo, which is, of course, a 
different world in many ways than what the Roman liturgy was authored in and how that worked out to be. And when we're talking about it, we have this development of the Zairean liturgy. And you had a lot of bishops of the Bishops' Conference of Zaire, which would now be the predecessor of the uh, Bishops' Con- Conference of the Congo, the Episcopal Conference there. There was a proposal for the uh, Zairean rite of the celebration of the Eucharist, which took place around 1988. So you have this development in which the bishops of the Congo wish to evangelize and in a real way incorporate the Christian imagination in a larger way into their people because, of course, the Congo had received the gospel at that point. You had many Catholics among the natives. But at the same time, you have these ideas of something that is foreign in a real way still. Um, An interesting question aside is the idea because, of course, at the same time, there are historically African liturgies in Alexandria and Ethiopia, but those are different. Those are African, but those aren't what was brought to the Congo with this. So we have a desire from the bishops to present the liturgy in a way that will capture the imagination and make the country more Catholic at the end of the day, evangelize it further, and concrete that kerygma which took place. Um, so the bishops proposed it, and it was approved by Rome. There was a bit of a process, which I go over in the paper, in which the Vatican and the Zairean bishops had a bit of a back and forth, figuring out what would be acceptable, what ought to be changed before it's approved. But yes. that's sort of the idea that they wanted to go for, allowing it to go forward and be a tool for further evangelization and capturing the hearts and minds of the faithful in that part of the world. One of my favorite quotes um, is from uh, from your paper. There are many. Uh, it's really, really well done and well documented, so it's easy to find the sources for these too. Um, you mentioned that uh, Pope Paul VI in his comments in his homily at the close of the Symposium of uh, African Bishops said, must the church be European, Latin, Oriental, or must she be African? Your church must first of all be all Catholic. This is a must. It must be entirely founded upon the identical, essential, constitutional patrimony of the self-same teaching of Christ as professed by authentic and authoritative tradition of the one true church. Um, and that, that quote alone says so much. Could you, could you speak to that? Yeah, and we have this idea, and I play with the idea a couple times across the paper, because we'll talk about someone being Roman Catholic, which is a bit funny bringing up what you did, because I grew up in a town in which there was the French Catholic, the Irish Catholic, and the Polish Catholic, all of which are (laughs) Roman Catholic, Um, just as a sidebar, because I always think it's funny. Those were the three national churches, and I was baptized and raised at a mission church, so we always made the joke in town at our church growing up that there was the Irish church, the Polish church, the French church, and the Catholic church. (laughs) Um, but there's this idea that when we're talking about what the church is it is Catholic before any other idea can be applied to it before we can call it Latin, Roman, European 
Oriental or African. There is an essential aspect at the center there which is necessary if it's to succeed at being any other label that it can do it. Um, and in a real way, we look at it because you or I as Latin Catholics, before we can be good Latin Catholics, we must be Catholics, period. And right. before we can live out the faith in any way that Latin Catholics do, uh, in other ways that other people might not, by it, be it daily mass or the rosary or the stations of the cross, we need to have that central core, which everything is built upon, the faith and the universal teaching of Christ and the universal lived reality of what that faith is before we can adapt it in any way. That quote by Pope Paul, he also warns against the deposit of the faith being compromised. Mm-hmm. Again, I love this piece. We are not inventors of the faith. We are custodians of it. Can you speak to some of the abuses? Um, We learn from our mistakes. Um, Can you speak to some of the things that have occurred that are, frankly, innovations and undermine the the authenticity of the faith and compromise us uh, as the people of God? Yeah, and when we're dealing with enculturation, that limits it a little bit. Um, I can think of a couple off the top of my head, and they'll react in different ways. One easy one to talk about is there was the presence in South America and some places to not use bread and wine for the Eucharist. Um, so, because in some places, and this is a interesting occurrence, because of course bread and wine are very standard European, American, Middle Eastern occurrences things that we encounter in our everyday life, but someone who's from a different culture might not have bread and wine on the table every day or even readily available to them. So at one such place in South America, there was a movement by some priest to replace bread and wine with, I forget the name in the native language, but a bread substitute made from sweet potato, not made from grain um, and other beverages. Um, And of course, this this would invalidate the Mass. We can't consecrate something that's not bread and wine at the Mass. So that's a big one because if you're doing that, Mass doesn't happen. And we hear about the nightmares, and I hope to God that they're not true of people using pizza and Coca-Cola in the 1970s or something. Right. Um, Same thing here in, in, yeah. Yeah, and you hear about that. um, And that's a major abuse in some ways. That's something that violates even the validity of the Mass. But then we can talk about something which doesn't touch validity, but perhaps does start to touch other points which are unhealthy enculturations. Um, some examples, and this is a particular thing that went back and forth, ideas of syncretism where some people, including reference to other gods, um, which of course never happened in a real way, or even when we're dealing with some cultures, which is in the paper and a very loaded topic, but the concept of ancestors, because, of course, ancestor worship is something that's very common historically and universally across the human race. We hold those who came before us in high regard. Um, But 
something which is very tenuous and the Zairean use does allow to acknowledge in some ways but can be taken too far and was historically in other parts of the world is the concept of including ancestor worship in the Roman liturgy, um, usually in the form of an incense offering. And some of these, in the way that they were worded or acknowledged, did start to seem to work against the overall idea of the church and start to invent something new. One of the other quotations that I, I really appreciate is from um, Pope uh, Leo Thirteenth, I believe, and it has, it has always been and always will be the intent uh, and tradition of the Apostolic See to make a large allowance in all that is right and good for primitive traditions and special customs of every nation. Um, that seems to be really at the heart of what the Holy See is trying to do is to retain what is good and holy and essential, but to allow for the individual expression so that there can be fruitful prayer that comes contemplatively from the heart and the soul and is not a mere rote repeating of somebody else's words. Mm. No, and that's um, that's true, and what Pope Leo XIII says in that piece does articulate in a large way the largest part and the church's largest intention in allowing this because this enculturation, if it's done with the right mind, if it's done with the right intention, is never simply about altering the liturgy or doing it for our own interest or for entertainment. It's always uh, meant to be a vehicle for the salvation of souls because um, you'll get cases, I can assume, where in some ways the, go- the gospel, the Christian culture and message hasn't captured uh, people or a atten- intention or attention yet. But this allows, and the intention of enculturation is to allow it to really grasp our attention in a new way, in a way that allows us to become better Christians because um, it's those moments in which we move from it being an external practice to a prayer of the heart. Right. And inculturation tries to make that possible so that as many as possible might accept the gospel in its fullness. I think to uh, the um, uh, Pashka Vespers uh, just a few weeks ago, uh, two weeks ago um, at my uh, Byzantine monastery, and how the proclamation um, is recited, is read in so many different languages. Um, it was uh, Romanian, it was Latin, it was uh, Gaelic. Uh, there were so many folks who were there, and each language was represented so beautifully so that the the words of, you know, he has risen, he has truly risen indeed, uh, alleluia, uh, are really heard in the heart um, within the context of one's own tongue. Uh, and how this isn't something new, this has always existed, and how beautiful that is. Yeah. No, and it's a real presence in the Byzantine liturgy at Paschal, Matins and Vespers allows that to happen in a really lovely way because 
Um, you have the repetition in that way, often at matins or vespers, even the gospel being done. I know at, here in Rome at the Church of St. Anthony the Abbot, which is the Russian Catholic Church in the city, I was there for Paschal Matins, and we did the gospel in Slavonic, English, Ukrainian, and Italian uh, yeah. for Matins, and I read the English part. But you do have this idea, and with us on the Gregorian calendar being on not the eve, but close to the eve of the great feast of Pentecost. Um, it does show that because whenever we're talking about Pentecost, we see Pentecost undoing what the Tower of Babel did in the Old Testament. Yeah. Um, because the Tower of Babel, we see this presence of people losing the ability to communicate by not being able to communicate in the same language. Their language was confused and they were cast to the corners of the earth. Pentecost undoes Babel in the way that even with the plurality of languages, that's now being used to serve the spread of the good news. Um, and that's what glossologia is when we talk about it, because we talk about glossologia in the gospel, speaking in tongues, as it would often be translated, as the apostles speaking in whatever language they were speaking and everyone being able to understand them. Um, and that real proclamation going out to the corners of the world heard by everyone and enculturation in that way is an attempt to articulate that to a whole new world. It's an act of Pentecost in that way since it seeks to communicate the truth of the faith to uh, people that might not understand it as well as if, as if it was presented in a different way. That is beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. One of the uh, uh, parts of your paper that I really enjoy is the chart um, toward the end. Uh, you have a fabulous chart going back to the parts of the Zairean Missal, um, looking at the Roman Rite and the Zairean use, and exactly how they pair up. Um, can you mention uh, how that developed? Yeah. Um, the chart really was an attempt by me to put it side by side because I'm a visual thinker, I'm a visual learner. So when we have just talking and listing rubrics, sometimes it doesn't quite match up. But when we're talking about the Zairean use, we talk about how things relate. And much of it is fairly similar. Um, this is one thing that I think is worth mentioning in general, because with a lot of the commentators after the Amazonian Synod referring to the Zairean use, my one takeaway from my research and writing this is that the Zairean use in a lot of ways is a much more conservative approach than a lot of people yes. think it is. Um, not as much is changed as some people might expect it to be. But yes. looking at the chart and seeing how it goes through, um, and I'm sure your viewers can find it online um, because it's a bit odd to read it out, but the Zairean use doesn't begin with the entrance procession, just like that, as the Roman liturgy does, but the announcer, who we mentioned before, does have a formal role in um, saying that the entrance procession is about to begin and welcoming and exhorting the people to prepare themselves in that way. So that happens, and then the introductory rite begins. After that, the introductory rites go on with the greeting, Penitential rite happens later in the Zairean use, so we don't see the penitential rite during the introductory rites. But there are a couple things that um, 
are, do exist there. There's what's called the standing in the presence of God, um, which is a recollection that occurs before, and what, again, we mentioned slightly before, the invocations of the saints and of right-hearted ancestors, which is an inclusion of the saints, a bit of a litany in some ways, and those ancestors of the tribes who lived righteous lives um, before it going, and then finally ending with what's called the homage to God, which is with this recollection having happened, um, a brief formula of homage to God before the collect. The collect happens, the liturgy of the word begins, and one other thing that does happen is the in desire and use in the liturgy of the word, the readers request a blessing and the priest blesses the reader, then the reader gives a gesture of gratitude each time before the reading. Um, this has to do with the concept of presidential nature in the village that they were trying to do it through. And after that, first reading, responsorial psalm, the repetition of that blessing, uh, request of blessing, blessing and gesture of gratitude, second reading, the gospel acclamation, all the way through, and then we have the homily and the creed. After the creed, we get a few things that it starts to get interesting and some things that were originally earlier and now later. After the creed, we have the penitential rite, um, which the commentators on the Zairean rite will say that is a recognition that you have these people who have heard the message, and this is the time after hearing the message to reconcile with each other. This is then followed by a sprinkling rite and then the sign of peace is a sign of the reconciliation having occurred. There's the prayer of the faithful. There's an offertory procession, which is a bit different in the Zairean use because there are phrases associated with it and a blessing of the people who present the gifts. Um, and then it really goes on as normal because the Eucharistic prayer and the liturgy of the Eucharist um, does allow to continue through. The sign of peace is not after the Our Father because it occurs earlier. And Mass does, from that point, continue on as normal and concludes much the same way. That's a brief overview of the structural differences. I hope that's not too um, in-depth or wordy, but perhaps oh, someone perfect. might find it no, interesting. That is really perfect, yeah. Deacon Lucas, as you look at this project in particular, but also your time of study there in Rome, if you had a nugget to give to other men in formation, what would that nugget be? Yeah, and one thing that I would give to men in formation, and I give it to a lot of the younger seminarians in my diocese, because whenever formation comes up, we talk about perseverance, we talk about troubles in discernment, in formation, etc., etc. Yes. And I think sometimes, often it's big ones. People might have issues with um, thinking, how am I going to go on without getting married? How am I going to learn all of this or that? Um, but I think it's always important because I think a lot of us feel it for quieter things because you talk about people who have tying back to what I said at the beginning, big reversions, conversions, and sort of big watershed moments in their personal faith, which inspire them. And, you know, we make the joke sometimes. You imagine sometimes with seminarians, the angel descending from heaven and handing them the scroll, saying that they're called <laughs> to be a priest. Um, 
And something that I have prayed with and thought about, and I think it's important for a lot of men to hear, is these ideas that sometimes growth in faith, growth in vocation and love of God is quiet. And that's not always what we want. But um, I was one of those people, like I mentioned, who Christ was always there in the background from my earliest days. And as a result, I don't have as many big moments to point to where I suddenly came to believe or something else. But it's the realization that an absence of those, as long as someone continues to grow in faith, hope, and love, um, perhaps doesn't make as good as a story, but is just the same worthiness, is just the same whatever, because very often when we look back, it is the quiet moments where we're growing the most because all things grow in silence, be it the human Mm -hmm. child in the womb or um, nature. And I think because too often in our own discernment in our vocation stories, we focus on the loud and the noisy, and it's fun. It's a good story. But those moments where we're not experiencing it isn't a sign that we're not called or not having had those isn't a sign that we're not called because there's a grace in that silence and in that normality in its own way. It's like uh, Elijah in the cleft of the rock and God not being in the earthquake or the fire uh, or the wind, but rather the tiny whispering sound. Exactly, yeah. Um, well, thank you so much. This has gone way too quick. I still have another 14 questions here to ask you. Um, <laughs> it was a great paper, and it's been a, a pleasure to have you on this program and to be able to share your insights with the listeners of WCAT Radio's Vows, Vocations, and Promises Discerning the Call of Love. And know that we will be praying for you uh, on June 19th. Um, please pray for us uh, as as you go forward too. Would you um, uh, right now give us a closing prayer? Sure, and thank you very much for your prayers. And um, let's close with one. So, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hello, God's beloved. I'm Annabelle Mosley, author, professor of theology, and host of Then Sings My Soul and Destination Sainthood on WCAT Radio. I invite you to listen in and find inspiration along this sacred journey we're traveling together to make our lives a masterpiece and, with God's grace, become saints. Join me, Annabelle Mosley, for Then Sings My Soul and Destination Sainthood on WCAT Radio. God bless you. Remember, you're never alone. God is always with you. Thank you for listening to a production of WCAT Radio. Please join us in our mission of evangelization. And don't forget, love lifts up where knowledge takes flight.